Countless books have been written about football or soccer, and some of them are very good. We have picked 11, which is also the number of players in a team, and we have decided to divide these books into categories. For this reason, we will be playing a 4-3-3 formation. The four-man defence consists of in-depth studies of the game. The first is by David Goldblatt, who has written several books about football, including The Game of Our Lives, The Meaning and Making of the English Game, and Futebol Nation, A Footballing History of Brazil. But we have chosen The Ball is Round, A Global History of Football, which was published in 2006. For an assessment, we turn to Goldblatt's fellow historian of the game, John Foote, who, for the record, is an Arsenal fan. What David Goldblatt does is he kind of has this panoramic view of um, of how football is a global phenomenon. And then he moves, he kind of comes down like an eagle into each country and tells you the story. And, and you get this global view of football in Argentina and it's Italy and Germany and Africa and uh, Asia. Um, and there isn't really isn't anything like football in terms of a global product and global power. Um, the World Cup is now, you know, the biggest global event by far in terms of audience and um, uh, social media interaction and uh, discussion. Um, so the power of this game, which is what David understands, is is quite extraordinary. And it's very interesting in times that we're living through now, which are very strange times, where there's no football and we're still talking about it. Um, you know, it's a very weird time because it's for the first time in 100 years, people don't have this game. And I wonder how we're going to come out the other end. And, and David's already writing about that now so because he has that kind of understanding of the of the way that football is a huge cultural power uh, across the world. Another recommended book on the global game is Simon Cooper's Football Against the Enemy. But as the second member of our back four, we have picked Desmond Morris's less well-known The Soccer Tribe, which was first published in 1981. Morris is a famous anthropologist who wrote the 1967 bestseller The Naked Ape, and he decided to apply his observational skills to the football terraces, something that he was able to do by studying the fans at his local club, Oxford United. He argues most convincingly that our support for football teams represents an atavistic desire to be part of a tribe, which was the social unit of choice of our ancestors. This might explain our use of colours and scarves to show our identity and our need for rituals and totems, as if we were followers of a religion. Not only that, football is similar to hunting, hence the use of trophies. Morris also provides an interesting answer to the question, why is football the world's most popular sport? According to one study, in an average game, the ball is touched every two seconds, which, Morris writes, must be close to the optimum required for exciting the human brain. The third member of our back four is a history of the game in an individual country, in this case, Italy. Calcio, a history of Italian football, is by John Foote. The idea behind the book is, is to try and explain Italian football through history, politics, culture, 
economics and why and why how it intersects football in Italy intersects all the time between those areas and how you can't really understand Italy I think without understanding the importance of football and you can't obviously understand football without understanding history culture politics and identity so it's it's all about um football in context as opposed to football in itself although there are aspects of that as well and it's a thematic book so there's a chapter on violence there's a chapter on the referee there's a chapter on uh, uh, foreign players and so on um the book was also written when i was living in italy so i was very much immersed in the, the town of the city of milan immersed in the football culture immersed in the um the teams that were playing at that time so it came out of my own experiences of understanding a different football culture to the one I'd been used to in Britain. And the book, I was very lucky with the timing of the book because it came out in 2006. And that was a year of two amazing events, which kind of are perfect for, for an historian of football. One was Italy winning the World Cup completely unexpectedly in Germany. And the other one was an incredible scandal called Calciopoli which um, intersected with that World Cup victory in many ways and, and kind of led to Italy's biggest club being relegated to Serie B, uh, second division for a year. So this, this, the book is full of stories about uh, football and ways of understanding football and, and interesting, fantastic, mad things that happen in Italian football, um, which, uh, which all connect to politics. And I think um, they help, understanding football really helps you understand Italians' relationship with the state and with the law and with their own hometown and with, with um, Italy in general. Football in another part of the world is also the subject of Andreas Campomar's Golasso, a history of Latin American football, which was published in 2014. It describes how the advent of football virtually coincided with the emergence of nation-states in Latin America, and how, in a region where national identity isn't clearly defined, as in the case of Campomar's homeland Uruguay, football can be its strongest manifestation. And if John Foote says that some of the stories in Calcio are mad, then in Golasso they are positively demented, with murder and even war appearing in the story. That then completes our formidable back four of Goldblatt, Morris, Foote and Campomar. For our three-man midfield, we have turned to a different type of football book, the memoirs of a player. For some advice, we ask Barry Fantoni, whose activities include cartoonist, artist, poet, novelist, actor, musician and, most importantly for our purposes, Millwall fan. Indeed, his love of the club was the inspiration for Neesden FC, the fictitious team which appeared on the pages of Private Eye, where Fantoni worked for most of his professional life. His favourite football book is, however, about Notts County, who was sadly relegated from the Football League in 2019, in spite of having been one of the 12 founding members back in 1888. Stake Diana Ross, Diary of a Football Nobody, is by David McVeigh, who played for the club in the 1970s, although the book was published many years later, in 2003. When you read Dave McKay's book, you realise that football is about playing at Scunthorpe in minus seven 
on a freezing cold winter's February night when you're two goals down and no hope of coming back and you've got to get back to your digs in the middle of Nottingham which is where he lived and for whom he played and then wash your own shirt and dry it on the boiler in the basement of the football ground and that your mate can't make ends meet so what he does is he gets up at six o'clock and he goes around all the farms in the area and collects eggs and he sells them for a penny profit in all the grocery shops that's the reality of football for the majority of people who play it it's very hard it's very difficult and glamour is not the word you use to describe it and when you read Dave's book you get some image of what it really means to be a professional footballer when you get sick and you can't play, when you get too old and you can't play, when you get injured and you can't play, and you're living in a digs with a bloke you don't like particularly, and you have to get on with it. My partner's uncle used to play for Nuts County. He was a, he was a halfback, a centre-half called Chris Pierce. And his life added up to nothing. And yet you read a book by Ray Rooney, who's 17 years old, who's had it written for him. Uh, and it's called My Life in Football. And then he's 17 years old, and then he's 18 years old, and he writes another book called Another Life in Football. And the only thing that's changed is the statistics, which is how many goals he scored, how much more he's earning, and how many more grannies he's shagged in the closet. The fact is that there are very few Wayne Rooney's and Christian Ronaldo's. Incidentally, if you don't know, Christian Ronaldo's Juventus shirt is CR7. CR7. That is the uh, code in London for Thornton Heath, which is the biggest shit heap on the planet. And um, I can't say any more about uh, Christian Ronaldo's football because I've never seen him play. But I, but I have seen a lot of fourth division football matches. And if you want the atmosphere of what it's really like, if you want to get the feeling of what it's really like to be a footballer, a real footballer, not just a ponce with a lot of money, then you read Dave McKay's book, uh, State Diana Ross. Barry Fantoni's second favourite football memoir is by Republic of Ireland international Eamon Dunphy, who played for Millwall from 1965 to 1974. The book is called Only a Game, The Diary of a Professional Footballer, and it was published in 1976. The thing I like most about Eamon's book is that um, it's, it's, like all good, it's like all good books written by people who wrote them, write them themselves. This, in other words, they don't get a ghostwriter to do it. Eamon wrote the book himself, and he's very, very uh, self-effacing and... and um, and he doesn't mind showing his own naivety. So when he, when he, this young Irish lad, incredibly gifted uh, dribbler, a really skillful player, when he joined Millwall, which was a very, very hard club in those days, the first person he met, obviously, was the captain, was Harry Cripps. And Harry Cripps was known as the hard man of football. And then, to be honest, there's nobody I ever saw who was a hard of football, including Franco Baresi and Chopper Harris. Harry was the hardest man who ever, ever kicked a leg. And Eamon uh, met him in the car park and Harry said, oh, hello, Eamon, nice to have you on the side. You know, it's great to see a young lad like yourself joining the club. Do you like music? 
And Amos said, yeah, I'm kind of, kind of partial to it. He said, you're Irish, aren't you? He said, yes, I am. He said, I've got a great album here. And he opened the boot of the car and there was a load of albums lying around. He said, listen, Eamon, I can do you a favor. I, I've got all the, this kind of Irish folk music here. He said, I can let you have it for, um, I can let you have it for 13 shillings, Eamon. You know, it's, I know it's a lot out your first week's wages, but it's a real bargain. So Eamon said, yeah, I'll take that 13 shillings for a collection of Irish music. Eamon went into the high street, went into Woolworths, and the same album was on sale for 11 shillings. That's the life of a professional footballer. There's no better way to describe it. It's downhill all the way. Millwall was also the club where Tony Cascarino played in the late 1980s. Cascarino, like Fantoni, was an Englishman of Italian origin, although he bizarrely qualified for the Republic of Ireland by virtue of having an Irish grandmother even if this later proved to be of no value, when it was discovered that his mother had been adopted. Cascarino left Millwall in 1990 and played for various clubs, including Chelsea, whose fans include another poet, Jan Noble. His favourite football book is Full Time, The Secret Life of Tony Cascarino, even if this was in fact written with the help of a ghostwriter, Paul Kimmage. The book was published in 2000, but perhaps we ought to confess that we have indulged in a little bit of poetic licence or cheating, as Cascarino wasn't in fact a midfielder, but a striker, as Jan Noble explains. It was really surprising, actually, his, um, the way he articulated the very much the journeyman aspect of being a professional footballer. And it wasn't glamorous, and it was unpretentious, and it was intelligent and incredibly articulate. Okay, so he was talking to, I forget who, who, who scribbled all his words down for him, but it was still an intelligent account of what it was like to be a footballer and the kind of side of probably the kind of um, life of a football that you don't you won't see again um, now that we have social media and the, the footballers are kind of rock stars um, and he was talking about the pain the physical pain he was talking about it as a job as something you know he had to go and do you know that it was it was to put food on the table you know for his family he wasn't a you know a millionaire he needed to keep playing and it was he was at that kind of point in his career uh, where you know that just he that he physically wanted to retire that he was in pain but he had to kind of carry on um, because you know he knew he wouldn't that was the end of his professional life you know um, so all of that was was a was a really um, telling account of football, and I think at a particular time in that transition from first division to premiership, um, and I think he kind of represented that old school British centre forward kind of lumbering into the the kind of the new age of the of the super athlete. If our midfield trio consists of McVeigh, Dumphy and Cascarino, then for our front three we have chosen another category, the memoirs of a non-player. 
There's a strange tradition in this and other sports, and that is that great players often make poor managers, while great managers were themselves often average players. Take, for example, Jurgen Klopp and Sir Alex Ferguson. Perhaps the same is true of football memoirs. The best ones appear to have been written by players whose careers were relatively unspectacular. Furthermore, some of the most successful managers, such as Jose Mourinho, never played professionally. By the same token, some of the best football memoirs are by non-players. Of course, in order to write a book about hooliganism, it probably helps if you aren't a professional player. That was certainly the case with Bill Buford, an American author who successfully infiltrated a Manchester United crew. He lived to tell the tale, and did so in his book Among the Thugs, which was published in 1990, the year that he and other England fans were savagely beaten by law enforcement officers in the Italian Avanta World Cup. Buford later abandoned football and indeed England to return to the United States, where he pursued a successful career as a chef and writer about food. Indeed, he recently published another book called Dirt, Adventures in Lyon as a chef in training, father and sleuth, looking for the secret of French cooking. Being an American actually proved to be an asset for Buford in his research for Among the Thugs. At the time, he was the editor of the Cambridge-based literary publication Granta. Had he been English, he would never have been accepted by a gang of hooligans. But his accent was socially neutral and he was allowed in. Our next football memoir by a non-player is Gary Imlach's My Father and Other Working Class Football Heroes, which was published in 2005. Gary Imlach's dad, Stuart Imlach, was a Scottish footballer who won an FA Cup winner's medal with Nottingham Forest in 1959 and was the first team coach at Everton when the club won the league championship in 1970. The book is recommended by Andy Hopkinson, an advertising executive who grew up supporting his hometown team, Portsmouth. What makes it such a really interesting book is it's a great um, kind of sepia view of what football was like in the late 50s and early 60s you know, before um, it, uh, football became really commercialised, but it was still absolutely a massively popular sport. It was a great kind of view, historic view of, of what it was like to be a footballer back in those days. But it's also a really touching kind of um, uh, kind of love story or a love letter, if you like, from a, a, a son whose dad died quite suddenly, who he hadn't actually seen play football. And it's a great homage to his dad, who was obviously a hero to people watching from the terraces, but he was also a hero to his son. And so despite the fact it's, it was in my lifetime, kind of just, and, and the footballers that I was watching in the 60s and early 70s were still very much working class players. There was still a maximum wage in the late 50s, early 60s. That maximum wage was set at around about the same as a factory worker would be earning. And so there was a, there's a really interesting note. I think Notts Forest, so, because he was playing for Nottingham Forest when, and he was FA Cup winner, man of the match, Scottish international, and they played a, an FA Cup third round replay against, I think it was Mitchum and Tooting. And 
And it was likely that the amateurs were probably man-to-man better paid than the professional footballers, because a couple of them would have had a half-decent office jobs. But it was so the it was an, a great equaliser. So the people playing football for their country and winning FA Cup medals and being watched by hundreds of thousands of people on the day were earning the same amount of money, if not less, than the people in the terraces. And the the system was completely feudal in those days. They had no control. Um, over who they played for. They signed for a club and they were the goods and chattels of the club and they could be sold at a moment's notice and indeed were. And in this book, it shows a couple of moves where the player had literally no say over where he was going or where he was going to be, where he was going to be living and with a young family he was given, if he was lucky, a tied a tithe kind of cottage house, which they lost as soon as there was any kind of dispute uh, with, the, with, with the employer. So it was a really kind of, as I say, feudal system. And even to the point where in 1958, I think it was, World Cup that he played and played for Scotland, they had no per diems. The manager... Um, uh, oh, they didn't actually have a manager because Matt Busby was meant to be the manager, but obviously he got involved in the awful plane crash and couldn't make it. So the, a, a kind of a sponge man was their notional manager. There wasn't anybody selecting the team. They had no expenses. They only got paid if they played. And there were a number of people who travelled away in the Scots squad who came back and were worse off than when they left with no other opportunities to, 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 to make money. The father-son relationship also provides the starting point for what is arguably the most famous football memoir written by a non-player. This is Nick Hornby's account of life as an Arsenal fan, Fever Pitch, which was first published in 1992. For an analysis, we turn to Blair Worden, a historian who specialises in the 17th century. He has supported Blackpool since his childhood, which coincided with the team's glory days in the 1950s. There's a nice film of the Hornby book, uh, but it's misleading. It turns it into a romance story. It does it very nicely. Um, but the book itself is really, I think it's the book that's given me most sense of what it's like to be a football supporter and to have the agony of it. It sp- speaks to me, I think, particularly because, uh, if you remember... Uh, it's uh, about a boy growing up and he has these awful Saturdays when he has to see his father. And uh, and his father desperately tries to think of things for him, you know, to take him to. And so one day he takes him to a football match and the son is very reluctant to go, uh, but he agrees to go. And he walks up the steps into the stadium and, and then suddenly sees the stadium before him and he knows that he's hooked on it. And that spoke to me because uh, I got on very well with my father, but my relationship with him was quite important in my uh, growing interest in in football. Uh, And then he gives you a sense of the, I think, of the tension, the fear of being a football sport, the fear that you would lose, the nerves before the game, uh, the terror of losing. Uh, Arsenal are going to win the championship. Are they? Are they? No, they won't. There's a sort of total sort of pessimism about it. Um, And, of course, he was describing supporting a team which was a particularly boring team, the Arsenal of the early 80s, was it, I suppose? Um, And 
the only reason for watching Arsenal was if you wanted them to win, because they probably would win. They probably win one nil, uh, having you know defended for most of the game. Um, and I didn't have the parallel experience to that. I mean, I never Blackpool were never uh, a boring team. Uh, they had lots of flair and interest to them when I started sporting them. Um, but uh, if all your interest is in whether they're going to win or not, it's, it could be pretty nerve-wracking, I think. And especially since Arsenal were defending so much. And so he does capture the, the, the misery of being a football, the addictive misery of being a football supporter. That completes our front three of Buford, Imlach and Hornby. But our formation, like that of all teams, has left out the goalkeeper. But we have decided to include one, and for this category we have chosen another type of book, the novel. When Nick Hornby established himself with Fever Pitch, he then proceeded to write several successful novels. They covered a number of subjects, but not, interestingly enough, football. That in itself is arguably a reflection of the fact that the beautiful game doesn't naturally lend itself to fiction. There is, however, one notable exception, and that is Anthony Cartwright's Iron Towns, which was published in 2016. This was recommended by Anthony Gardner, a journalist and Queen's Park Rangers fan who has published two novels, The Rivers of Heaven and Fox, and a volume of poetry, The Pool and Other Poems, although none of these books are about football. We conclude with his thoughts on Iron Towns. So it's the story of this ex-England footballer um, at the end of his career. Um, I mean, his England <laughs> England um, career consisted of coming on for forty-five seconds as a as a substitute. Um, but he, you know, he did wear the England shirt. He's now in the book. He's thirty-nine. It's probably his last season. His team, Iron Towns, who were once up at the top, have fallen on very hard times. They're at the bottom of the league. Um, they're facing possible relegation, possible liquidation. Um, so there's a sort of there's a synergy between his career and the fate of his club, um, and also the fate of the town in which it's set. So it's set in a, a town in the industrial Midlands or north of England. Um, and the, uh, the, the industry has gone and people are, are living um, you know, a, a pretty miserable existence. Um, so there's a real, it's very atmospheric and there's a real dimension of um, social comment as well, but, you know, subtly done. Um, and there's also extra drama in, in that the... Liam, the, the main character, is one of a group of friends who underwent a traumatic um, experience 20 years ago. And one of the people involved has just been um, released from jail and he's coming back to the town and you've got a feeling that something awful is going to happen when he, when he arrives. So there's that sort of high noon element of the waiting for the this uh, very disruptive arrival. Um but in, in the end, um, you know, football is still crucial to the story. Um, cleverly, Cartwright 
doesn't just dwell on Iron Town. So Liam has all these tattoos on his body commemorating great footballers and great events. And so interspersed in the narrative of the novel, there are a sort of glimpses of great football moments from the past with great international players and and key matches in the in the game's history. But in the end, um, it comes down to two penalties, and there's one penalty that was taken. 20 years ago in a crucial match that has had repercussions for the lives of the main characters ever since and then right at the end of the book there's another penalty and Liam is going to take this penalty and you know the club's entire future rests on it and as with a real game you've got no idea what's going to happen is he going to score is he going to miss that's what it comes down to and it's uh, you know it's a it's a fantastic finale it's a very well structured book and it builds to a very very exciting and um cliffhanging conclusion so it's far and away the best novel about uh, football that i that i've come across and i would thoroughly recommend it And if you enjoyed that, look out for our other football podcasts.